this is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dunmill, an expert in 19th century literary and publishing history. Welcome listeners to episode four of our fifth season. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Charles Elmay Fracatelli, who lived from 1805 to 1876. So thank you for bearing with us. As we kind of mentioned in our bonus episode, our health is the most important. And luckily we're now back to half strength, not full strength, I wouldn't say, but um, we're well enough to record, which is a blessing. Yeah. It feels like a really big thing, and I'm just really glad to be, um, yeah, chatting about Victorian uh, homemakers, domestic people, <laughs> cooks, <laughs> again. Yeah, so with that, I think we'll launch right in. All the information that I could find about Francatelli is kind of circumspect. And there are a couple of reasons for this, which are highlighted by Colin Smythe in probably the most complete account of Francatelli's life. So first, there were three people in the family with the same name. We have come across mm. this before, but please, Victorians, get some new names. Mm-hmm. So he had a great nephew who was possibly just christened Charles Francatelli, but added the LMA in there just to be extra confusing. And a son who seems to have emigrated to the US. Um, The second reason is that little has been written about him previously, and what is found is often inaccurate. Smythe notes that this is probably because he wrote little about himself, which is the third reason. So maybe it's best to start with what little autobiographical information we have. So um, some of that biographical information comes from the cookbook that he wrote. So he ends the preface to the first edition of The Modern Cook with a somewhat apologetic one-paragraph biography. I love that you call it a... I love that it's an apologetic biography. Um, it really does read. He's like, sorry, I really... I'll, I just need to tell you something about myself. But that it ends there. <laughs> so he tells the reader that despite his Italian name, he is an Englishman and, quote, received his professional education in Paris, end quote under famous chefs of the time, such as Marie-Antoine Carême. Uh, Frankentelli supplies a list of the, quote, most distinguished bon vivants among the British aristocracy and gentry, end quote, for whom he worked, including the Earl of Chesterfield, Lord Kennard, and Sir W. Massey Stanley, which ends with the crowning achievement of his career, his time serving Queen Victoria. So you may be familiar with Frankentelli because of his character on ATV's Victoria, um, it's actually why I knew about Francatelli. So, I mean, the media sometimes can be a nice open door into learning new things. Yeah. And <laughs> this is one of those times, yeah. <laughs> it's a semi-faithful representation. I mean, they get the basic mm, facts right. Yeah. Well, most of the basic facts right. Yeah, and as far as I could tell, that paragraph is the full extent of autobiographical information we have about Francatelli. Ooh. So... If we try to fill in some gaps from other sources, 
As we kind of we gestured to his Italian heritage, Francatelli was most likely born in London in 1805, and his parents were Italian, or at least his father was. I'm not sure about his mum. They were Nicholas and Sarah Francatelli. Smythe says he probably had an older brother, but that is, again, the full extent of early family information I could find. It's kind of funny that his dress is frequently described as being more formal than might be expected of a cook. And one reporter described him as being, quote, dressed in the most exuberant style of showiness and spoke with much affectation. End quote. In a possibly almost certainly fictional or, if we're being generous, misremembered account, George Augustus Seller described him as, quote, a very intelligent, courteous person whose only artistic fault was that he had an exceeding weakness for the use of truffles with which, often without rhyme or reason, he pertinaciously stuffed his dishes, end quote. I found that so funny because I don't know how much um, like food network you watch, but that's such a common criticism of modern chefs. Yeah, I mean, like any place that kind of has pretentious of being sort of fancy has like truffles or truffle oil and yeah. 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 It seems like, it seems like such a recent thing that people have been complaining about and then it's so funny to find a, an account from the mid 19th century of mm-hmm. too much truffles <laughs> we're still like dealing like we're still in the long 19th century in a lot mm. of <laughs> depressing ways Sala supposedly met Francatelli at the reform club but he's so there's no evidence that they overlapped in their time there so it's very likely that he was either misremembering or just straight up inventing the story which is like in line for Saul mm-hmm. as a sensation fiction writer, like works with Mary, uh, Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Like, I mean, yeah, writers were notoriously <laughs> not reliable about the stories we tell. <laughs> um, so uh, Frankatelli's famous mentor, Karam, has a fascinating history of his own. Uh, we won't go into detail, but it's worth noting that Karam was born in a shed thrown out by his father, who thought he'd do better alone, worked his way up to cooking for the likes of Prince Regent and later George IV, and managed to fit some light spying into his work routine while working for the French foreign minister, Talleyrand. That's like, I want I want to watch that story on TV. I literally like the biography that I found of Karem is maybe two pages long, and if it's all that information, and I'm sure there are longer biographies, but I do want to know more a cook is like such a a good spy too because Mm. like you're like a member of someone's household and like especially if you're like almost a celebrity chef like these people working for well you're like there's a sort of um access that you get like (laughs) yeah i don't know and also people just expect you to be silently in the room not reacting but yeah that's so cool sorry (laughs) After finishing his training in France, Francatelli worked as a chef in private houses for some of the aristocrats mentioned in the preface to The Modern Cook. The earliest employment that I could find for him in London started in September 1838. At this time, Francatelli took over the kitchen at the St. James's Club, which is more generally known as Crockford's after its founder. And the members of Crockford seem to have given mixed reviews. Benjamin Disraeli didn't think much of him, and in fact remarked that he was quite a failure. But William Hay, the 18th Earl of Errol and Lord Steward of the Queen's household, disagreed. 
Crockford's had between 1,000 and 1,200 members at any given time, each paying an annual subscription of £25, which is somewhere in the realm of £2,500 today. As always, if you're already rich, you get things for free. So free entry was given to important foreign dignitaries like the King of Holland. The paying membership covered many of the most famous aristocratic men in the country, such as the Duke of Wellington. On the 9th of March, 1840, at his suggestion, Fringatelli left Crockford's to take up a new position as Queen Victoria's chief cook and maitre d'hôtel. Um, he was paid £250 a year, which is between 234000 and 317000 in 2021 currency. And while this was certainly extremely generous, it was an eighth of what his mentor Karam had been paid by the Prince Regent. So we should mention that the the Prince Regent is sort of known for his flagrant spending. So this is not meant to imply that Karam wasn't worth the paycheck he pulled, but just to give you sort of a comparison of um, what a celebrity chef was making in the 19th century. I keep saying celebrity chef. Mm -hmm. That's totally inaccurate. My brain is just using that phrase. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think it's, it's kind of a useful counterpart for what they would have been. Today, yeah, though. yeah. So it's also worth noting that Contrary to the version of Francatelli that appears in ITV's Victoria, he was already married to his first wife when he joined the Queen's staff, and they had two children together, Emily and Ernest, born in about 1834 and 35, respectively. I love that they chose alliterative names. I'm I'm a sucker for that. And also that kind of go with the Elme, especially Emily. Right. Yeah. During his time at Buckingham Palace, Francatelli had two dozen undercooks and two deputy chefs working under him. His work created a fashion for the kind of food the upper classes served to their guests, requiring rare ingredients and a whole team of cooks to prepare. In the winter of 1841, stories about conflicts between palace staff leaked to the newspapers, with Francatelli at the centre of them. These seem to have begun when Charles Augustus Murray was appointed comptroller and almost immediately dismissed a large number of staff so that they could be replaced by French servants. According to a report in the Morning Post, the deputy comptroller and Mr Norton was able to smooth over the jealousy and resentment caused by the move, while Francatelli, quote, has kept his department in continual broils, which have been the cause of many dismissals and numerous complaints, end quote. On the 30th of November, Francatelli, quote, took an opportunity of insulting Mr Norton, end quote. <laughs> in front of other members of staff, and the ensuing fight was dramatic enough that he was taken into custody by police. What? He was suspended until Victoria and Albert could make a decision about his future. And Hay, who had recommended him to the position, was no longer working as Lord Stuart at the time of these dramatics. But it must have been quite embarrassing to be associated regardless. <laughs> it's really not clear whether Frank Tully's decision to dedicate the modern cook to Hay was quite welcome. Wow. Scandal in the kitchens. <laughs> yeah, and I read it, I know we were talking about xenophobia earlier, but I read it as really indicative that there's this whole thing that you still get today of the English staff are being sacked to be replaced with French servants. Mm. And then because Francatelli has been trained in France and has a foreign surname, everyone's like, well... I mean, he, he is not... <laughs> Here's a person that you, from what we'll talk about later, you will expect to be at the centre of dramatics anyway. But I do mm -hmm. get a sense there's some element of 
uh, this foreign trained chef with a foreign name must be res- like related to this issue. There's also no evidence to tell us who actually made the decision to part ways, but by the end of December, a quarter's notice had been given, and Francatelli officially left the palace on the 31st of March, 1842. And I suspect that he may have been on what, I don't know if there's a name for this in the US, in the UK we call it garden leave. But it's essentially you, you're still technically working for the place, but they say don't come in. Mm. So the etymology is like, go and sort out your garden for the three months when you're supposed to be working here. Oh, that's fascinating. The only time I've heard of that is like academic, like administrative leave. Well, you're still getting paid, mm. but like you're under investigation or something, <laughs> basically. I think it's it's kind of similar. It's like you've done something bad enough to be fired, but not bad enough that they can fire you immediately. So they say, we don't want yeah. you here anymore, but mm. leave. Yeah, it's not really clear if he actually is working during that time, but from other evidence we have, I suspect he was already working somewhere else. Mm. So if you're wondering what argument could have spurred this amount of dramatics, a clearer explanation of the potential source comes from novelist Catherine Gore, who had recently returned from nine years living in Paris when all this was going down. Um, And I'm going to quote somewhat at length because it really summarizes attitudes toward cookery in the mid-19th century. And we'll also be linking to the full article in the show notes for you to read. So writing under the pseudonym Albany Points, that is a wonderful pseudonym. I'm just bowled over by that. Um, She pulls no punches about the difference between the training of chefs in England and France. And she suggests that Frankatelli lost his place because of an, quote, oversensitive temperament end quote, and disconnect between the English approach to cookery, where the chef is, quote, disgraded, sorry, degraded by the antediluvian name of cook, end quote, because, quote, the English are notoriously the most backward of civilized nations in the art of cookery, end quote. (laughs) Um, Because of the low regard with which cooking was held in Britain, English cooks were, quote, as unconscious of the sacredness of their calling as if they were no higher in the scale of domestic life than a burnisher of plate, end quote. Whereas French educated chefs considered themselves artists or artistes, we might say. Mm. Um, This disconnect, Gore argues, was at the heart of the argument and Francatelli became, quote, Saint Saint Francatelle, who suffered martyrdom in the fifth year of the reign of Queen Victoria, the Coriolanus of Pimlico, who had been banished from the royal kitchen, end quote. There's also a suggestion in this piece that Victoria's own tastes may have been more inclined to the English style of cooking. Francatelli returned to Crockford's in the spring of 1842. It's not clear what his new salary was at this point, but Smythe is sure it would have been considerably higher than what he'd learned what he'd earned while in the Queen's service. He stayed there until it closed on the 1st of January, 1846. So his first book, which we've alluded to already, The Modern Cook, was published in 1845, and it went through a huge number of editions. In the preface to the 25th edition, Frank Telly sets out his intended audience, professional cooks and their employers. And he thanks the public for their support and the, quote, steady demand the book enjoyed. Like Acton, he makes a specific point of acknowledging a desire to create recipes that were accessible to most people. The costly dishes are still there, though. They have to be, because one of his big selling points is to experience as chef to the queen. He followed this up with Italian cookery in 1846. Ooh. So he's clearly leaning into the name. Yeah. 
That same year, he went to work for the Coventry House Club and probably remained there until it closed on the 25th of March, 1854. There are a couple of anecdotes about his time there that give a good indication of his character. In the first, uh, sorry, in one instance, a diner complained that their meal wasn't hot enough and didn't have the garnishes they'd expected. When Francatelli was summoned for reprimand, he, quote, shrieked at the guest in French and told the committee the next day that if the guest didn't apologize and quit the club, he would tender his resignation. The idea of apologizing to a cook was highly unusual, as we've already sort of discussed um, the English regard for cooking at the time. Um, but clearly, Francatelli had enough sway to back up the demand. He stayed at the Coventry until it closed. We don't know much more about the Coventry. Uh, there's not a lot of information about it online. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is my silly little note that's like, it's quite easy to find what information there is about Crockford's and likes. It's a unique name. Whereas the Coventry Club just brings up a lot about the city mm. in the Midlands. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but Smythe quotes a member, Sir William Gregory, who said the club was worth belonging to for its, quote, incomparable cuisine, but, but that otherwise it represented, quote, ignorant, useless dandyism without the prestige of rank. Frankatelli's third book, Plain Cookery Book for the Working Classes, was published in 1852 and offered a contrast to the lavish fare served to Victoria and to the upper classes following her dinners. Critics were perhaps understandably confused when they heard he was coming out with this because his background has been fine dining and working for the gentry and aristocracy. Um, but what's not understandable is that they mocked him for it. Mm. And his response was that part of the reason he did this was that he could feed 1,000 families on the food wasted in London on a single day. Wow, yeah. I mean, he would know as a chef. I always think about that with modern cooking shows too. Like, there's so much food waste when you like do the fancy thing like to cut carrots into squares what is that called julienning carrots or something like that like mm. a lot i don't know what happens to that food but i suspect that a lot of it's just thrown out like the the ugly bits right yeah such a good like i like i don't know this is a complete aside but i find those shows kind of stressful anyway until i found out that usually the uh, the crew will eat the food oh nice but, so but otherwise they're making two versions of everything yeah and who is eating it? Yeah. So I completely get you. Yeah. It's it's like um, acting. It's like as soon as you do something where you're like, this is going to be for the working classes, this is going to be for the regular people, mm -hmm. all the food reviewers are like, but why? Why would you do that? Why can't you make more peacock that no one eats? This is a complete tangent, but I'm, I'm sure you know, Courtney, but the listeners might not know. That was a huge trend in the Victorian period, having peacock on your table, but apparently it tasted horrible. So no one ate it. Yeah. It was just a status symbol to have it on your table when you had a, a dinner party. Uh, yeah. Rich people. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> so Frank Catelli would very well know <laughs> about food waste. Um, after his time at the Coventry House Club, Frank Catelli um, started work at the Reform Club um, in June of 1854, and this is possibly his most well-known period of employment, though not memorialized in a TV drama. So the, 
The Reform Club was founded in 1836, and it had a reputation for catering to members with a more progressive political viewpoint, which is only slightly belied by the fact that the founder, Edward Ellis, made most of his money through the Hudson Bay Company. The list of famous members could occupy an episode of its own. Scribblers on that list include Thackeray, Henry James, and H.G. Wells. Gladstone was also a member, so if you're keeping a tally of prime ministers, we're at two. Unless we're counting by terms, in which case serving both Disraeli and Gladstone covers most of the mid-19th century. It's like a game of, I don't know if you play this in the UK, but Hop Frog, where like you're a little kid and you like your friends line up and you hop over all of them and then the next one hops over all of them. And it's like, that's what the prime ministers are like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's called Leapfrog here, which is such a weird different linguistic difference. Oh, nope. Nope. It is called Leapfrog. I just have uh, no memory anymore. <laughs> hop Frog. <laughs> Gosh, what's happening to me? I mean, it's a believable difference. I think I was mixing up hopscotch mm. and leapfrog. Again, he was praised for his culinary genius, but appears as an incredibly difficult person to work with. Mm. An audit of the club found that he not only hadn't provided receipts for £78, which sounds like small beans, but that's between seven and £8,000 in 2022 money. So he didn't provide these receipts for seven or £8,000 in modern money spent on ingredients and materials but refused to do so as a matter of principle. Mm. I'm not sure what the principle was, but I guess that he thinks he's being disbelieved. Yeah. Another mm. story involves him serving the president of the club who had cut his expenses. When the president complained about the quality of his steak, Frank Daly essentially told him that making a nice steak was impossible on the budget he'd been provided. <laughs> he stayed at the Reform Club until either 1861 or 1862, when he was dismissed, quote, on a point of temper and not of efficiency, and because he attempted to act as the master and not as the servant of his employers. <laughs> In 1862, The Royal Confectioner was published, containing mostly recipes for desserts and sweets, as you might expect from the title. The following year, Cookery for the Lancashire Operatives, by an Englishman, was prepared for free distribution during the Cotton Famine. Compiled by Thomas Bailey Potter, the pamphlet was anonymous and was reprinted in 1871 under the name Popular Cookery. I thought that was really interesting because, again, we're getting the like back and forth between fancy cooking for the aristocracy and useful cooking for the working classes. Yeah. It's one of those things that makes you wonder if like, he knows he makes most of his money from the like the wealthy like flashy recipes mm -hmm. but he like his real passion is um working class cooking or like just making cooking more accessible and i would imagine from from the little spats he's often having that working in the gentlemen's clubs would only put him off the aristocracy yeah. even more but it's such a interesting like in such an interesting complication of his character because he sounds like uh, sort of like a drama queen. Mm -hmm. I don't know, sort of, sort of could just be struck out of that sentence. He, you know, like he sounds like oh, he yeah. would be sort of like all about that, like flashy life. Like he thinks really highly of himself. Like it seems like from if you only take that side of what little we know about him, it would almost seem like the working class would be beneath his notice. But clearly it's not. Yeah, and the other thing that I found interesting about this is obviously he's been framed previously because of his surname and his French training. Yeah. It's kind of continental, and he explicitly, even though it's anonymous, this is published by an Englishman. 
Mm-hmm. So he's reclaiming that part of his identity, kind of. Yeah, yeah. And it's almost like, does it sell better when he sounds French when he's selling for the aristocracy? But if he plays on his Englishness when he's selling for mm. the regular people. On the 7th of February, 1863, the creation of the St. James's Hotel was announced, with Francatelli as the, quote, company's manager. And by 11th of May, he seems to have been working on a somewhat unofficial basis in the Prince of Wales's household. Smythe suggests that he may have been doing this since Prince's moved to Marlborough House, which is not far from the St. James's Hotel. His important position at the hotel would have precluded him from being listed officially in the Prince's staff. And it also seems likely that while Francatelli was running the kitchens of Marlborough House and the St. James's, his wife was actually responsible for the day-to-day management of the hotel. Mm. Just another thank you to my wife for typing up my thesis. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) Strikes again. Behind every successful man (laughs) in the Victorian period is a wife who's actually doing all the work. There was one that went wrong recently. Sorry, this is a complete aside, but there was one that went wrong recently that was particularly egregious because it basically said, thank you for my wife for doing most of the research. And then I've written it up. Yeah. Ugh. It's like, uh, <laughs> let's just give your wife the, the PhD then. And you're clearly, the, <laughs> you're, you're clearly yeah. the typist in this case. So Frankatelli's reputation grew during his time at at St. James's, with one report describing him as, quote, beyond all question, the greatest artist who is catering at this present writing for the gourmets of London, end quote. Regular diners at the hotel included the Royal Society and various army regiments. He was responsible for the controversial, quote, first serious attempt at horse eating in England. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, which was apparently enjoyed by the guests, but such an anathema to the general public some reports about it refused to mention the name of the hotel for fear of the public reaction. I'm just going to sidebar here to say that uh, because of uh, our health and stuff, Eleanor did all of the research for this episode. So that was my <laughs> discovering this in real time reaction. <laughs> yeah, when I was reading about it initially, I was like, oh, I, <laughs> I don't know, because on, on the one hand, I think that his approach to this and i kind of agree is like if you're happy eating a cow why aren't you happy eating a horse like what what is the difference um i I personally don't eat either yeah um yeah it's kind of shocking to read the strength of the reaction to this like i say like the reports are saying oh we can't publish the name of where this happened because you'll storm the premises and riot essentially a final cookbook the Cook's Guide and Housekeeper's and Butler's Assistant was published in 1864. And on the 2nd of March, 1869, Frank Telly's wife, Elizabeth, died. Just over a year later, in mid-March 1870, he resigned from the hotel, which by now was popularly known as Frank Telly's and is referred to as such in Braddon's Weavers and Weft. Hmm. On the 2nd of August, 1870, he married his second wife, also named Elizabeth, who was 25 to his 64. Oof. Yeah. They had three children together. Violet, who unfortunately only lived for a year from 1872 to 73. Bessie, who lived from 1874 to 80. And Charles Jr., who was born in 1877. And we don't know how long he lived. He's the son that we think maybe emigrated to the US. Mm. 
the ridiculous writer part of my brain was like, that question mark means he might still be alive as a vampire. <laughs> he could be. Um, I've been just in my speculative little world for a while. <laughs> There's no evidence he died. Probably because it was in a different country. You never know. <laughs> yeah. So by October 1870, Francatelli was working as sole manager of the Freemasons Tavern. Though still catering banquets, reports indicated that Quote, his genius was dimmed, end quote, possibly because of the lackluster enthusiasm of his patrons for what he considered an art. He died on the 10th of August, 1876, at Eastburn on the south coast. Yeah, so that's what we know about Charles Elmay Francadelli. Yeah, and I, I would really encourage anyone who's found this interesting to read um Smythe's article, which is linked in the show notes, because that is really, I didn't want to just obviously repeat everything that's said there. I was trying to kind of edit it down to what might be most relevant. But yeah, I'd really encourage reading that because it's really, I don't say really interesting. That's a really boring way to put it, but. Informative, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it's very informative and it shows really his personality. Yeah. which, as we've seen from this, was quite out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so fat. Like, I wish we I wish we knew more. He seems like a very fascinating person. But I'm also, like, left wondering at the end of this, you know, like, we still have this thing of um, sort of this gender issue, the, like mm-hmm. the elephant in the in the cookery conversation, right? Like where if we if we sort of liken Fringatelli to a celebrity chef, where it seems to be mostly men who are um the chef status. But no, oh, and then also you have like a celebrity amount like Gordon Ramsay is like a genius who does like yeah. out there food. Like Hessen Blumenthal especially. And then you get like Martha Stewart is like a homemaker. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is the first episode where um, that sort of like, I mean, this is also the first male cook we've covered in mm-hmm. in this season. But yeah, so, you know, why does this refrain keep coming up so often that we're still living in the long 19th century? But it does seem to be like a pattern that still persists from Francatelli on. Not that Francatelli himself is responsible for that, but that just sort of comes to mind over the course of this episode no but i think almost with his outburst like it was just the first person who came to my mind but Gordon ramsey probably is a good counterpoint of like both yeah. of them can get away with screaming at people yeah i just left there wondering if for example eliza Acton screamed at people like that yeah well a she's not working as a professional chef yeah but um you lose all credibility and you get called histrionic which mm. if there's one word to describe francatelli i think it is histrionic mm-hmm. yeah it's 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 interesting to think about for sure and i do think that gordon ramsay is a really <laughs> a really spot on like historical parallel or modern parallel um and because like if you think of, i don't know all the shows that he's doing in the u.s about like going around and helping these small town businesses get back on their feet it is like this really like weird sort of like movement back and forth between like working class and high dining Mm. okay so um 
Keep an eye out next month for a couple of timeline episodes. In those, we'll give you a teaser about our next Victorian cookery or household management um, buff. Buff seems like a weird choice of words, but yeah, let's go with that. Our next, uh, uh, our next bio episode subject. And until then, take care and thank you for listening. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd. And me, Alana Dumbbell. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review or comment on social media. It's nice to know we aren't podcasting into the void. And if you're interested in helping support our work, you can contribute via our Ko-fi page. That's ko-fi.com slash Victorian Scribblers. Or make a recurring tip via our Pinecast tip jar to get access to private content right here in your podcatcher. The links are in the show notes.